You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary South. We exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission by seeing the lost redeemed, the redeemed matured, and the matured multiplied for the glory of Jesus Christ. Connect with us online at redemptioncalgarysouth.com. If you have a Bible with you, I'd ask you to turn to the book of 1 Timothy and turn to chapter 6. This morning we're going to be moving on through verses 6 to 10, talking about the fatal attraction of money. As we celebrate this Palm Sunday and as we anticipate Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday to come, as we remember Christ entering the city of Jerusalem, humble, triumphal on a donkey, as he rode in, this was a royal uh, ascent into the city, uh, but also with that, it was a humble display of the Son of Man, the Son of God, who had no place to lay his head, entering his father's city. And we remember as he, as he entered in, as much as the crowds were cheering, there was also those who jeered, right? The crowds were crying out, Hosanna, right? Hosanna in the highest, save us, God, save us. There was also those in the crowd who were concerned about this coming king. They were concerned about him coming in to interrupt the kingdom that they were building. You know, as Jesus would go to and from the temple during this last week, during this this holy, passionate week leading up to his crucifixion, He had many encounters, many furious confrontations and encounters with the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, and the priests over what the temple of God had become. As the scribes were taking those last few coins from the widows and from the poor, as the money changers took their cut on the exchange, as the sacrifice sellers sold their overpriced doves and pigeons, and as, as the priests and the overseers of the temple were all lining their greedy pockets, the temple that God intended to be a light to the nations had become a palace of money, a temple of corruption by greed. And so let me ask you, as you remember the Gospels and, and even as you remember us going through the book of Mark, how did Jesus respond to the love of money? How did he respond to such greed and corruption? How did he react to the fact that uh, religion was being used for the lining of pockets? Or as Paul said last week in our text, that, that godliness had become a means of gain. What did this meek and mild Jesus do in the face of the worship of money instead of his father? Well, he erupted in furious, righteous anger. He went throughout the temple, table by table. He violently threw over those tables of money and the sacrifices, threw it all to the ground. He raged with rightful, wrathful fury that his father's house, which was supposed to be a house of prayer, a house of worship, had become a den of robbers that a brood of vipers, the caretakers of the temple, these whitewashed tombs were so in love with gold that they rejected their God. Brothers and sisters, since the beginning of time and throughout all history and even more so today, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. As false religion had infected the temple back in Jesus' day, young Timothy in our text here just 30 or so years later, was facing a church infected with the love of money. As the false teachers, as we learned last week, were imagining that godliness was a means of their gain, right? They were all about religion for riches. They were in it not for God's glory, but for their own glory, right? To line their own pockets. They were greedy for gain, And friends, as as much as it was a problem for the false teachers back then, uh, Paul doesn't just confront them with the problem. He also confronts the whole church 
that as much as this was a stinging indictment against the false teachers leading the church astray, there was also a deeper problem that the whole church needed to be aware of. That the love of money is a universal problem for all. And as we're studying to be a healthy church, a biblically sound and Christ-exalting church, that we as well better get on top of this issue in our own lives. Before Satan tears the church apart. Friends, as the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, we need to root it out in our hearts. Friends, when you think about your garden, when you've got weeds, just pulling the top off the weeds, just mowing over the weeds really does nothing, does it? Now you have to get to the root. And so today as Paul turns the tables on us, as he turns the focus on all of us, he's going to highlight the extreme dangers of this universal temptation. And what we're going to see here is that the love of money is a a polluter, it's a spoiler, it's a deceiver, and it's a robber. And that the love of money is a spiritual, fatal attraction. Well, let's go to the text and see what Paul has to say. Verse 6 in chapter 6 of 1 Timothy. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Let's pray. Father, we approach your throne today uh, through the blood of Jesus Christ, full of the Holy Spirit. We come before you knowing that in and of ourselves we we bring nothing to the table. Uh, When we think about the gospel that we were just singing, we, we, we are reminded that this is all of you. Uh, that you are the one who is mighty to save, and you are the one who is faithful to sanctify and to change us into your image for your glory. As we turn to your word this morning, and as as we focus on this topic of money, and as we know the temptation and the universal problem that it is, we pray that you would work on our hearts Lord, as as we look at this text and we see that uh, love at the beginning of this, uh, that we are tempted to love other things beside you, would you root out in our hearts today, whatever that may be, as we're walking through the doors, our love for lesser things that are competing with your glory in our life. And so as we focus on money, this also applies elsewhere as well. And we ask for you to, to apply it deeply and produce change, change that brings you glory, change that brings fame for your name alone. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And friends, we need to root it out in our hearts because the love of money is a polluter, a spoiler, a deceiver, and a robber. The love of money is a fatal attraction. Recent Financial numbers across our country show that Canadian households owe an average of $1.75 for every dollar of disposable income. Recent numbers show that the average Canadian owes about $73,000 in total debt. And even within that, if you remove the, the mortgage debt from this number, the average Canadian individual owes about $21,000 of unsecured debt. Debt from credit cards, debt from lines of credit, debt from vehicle loans, and on and on it goes. I got friends who uh, own a a debt uh, restructuring business, and the numbers that they show is that the average household that is coming to them for help right now owes about $51,000 in unsecured debt debt. On average, as you can see, people have issues when it comes to money and stuff, and it gets them in trouble. And you'd be surprised how many of those are Christians. 
Friends, as our culture today is, is, is very consumeristic, we struggle by and large with the love of money. We struggle with greed and gain. We struggle with the, uh, the accumulation of stuff. And what's even more concerning is that the church is not immune to this. Professing uh, Christians can also be greedy for gain, can, be, can succumb to the, the desire and the temptation for the accumulation of stuff. And friends, Christians can get themselves quite practically in a lot of trouble when it comes to money. And they can get themselves as well, as we see in the text here, into spiritual trouble. And for even those who are professing believers, they can get themselves in eternal trouble. As the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, what do we need to know about it? Why, why is it so tempting? Why is it so harmful and widespread? And, and how do we just commonly, all of us, fall into this trap? And what is the ultimate outcome? And so we're going to start out in verse 6, where we see first here that the love of money is a polluter. It's a perspective polluter. It magnifies the temporal over the eternal. It focuses on the here and now, and it ends up clouding the greater reality of eternity. Verse 6, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of this world. Godliness with contentment is great gain. That's where we're starting. So friends, as the false teachers back in verse 5 were using godliness as a means for gain, for selfish greed, Paul here sharply corrects them, and he, and he ultimately turns to the whole church here through this letter uh, and starts to lay out a godly perspective, right? That godliness, living a faithful, holy Christian life, is to be marked by true contentment. And a life of godliness marked by contentment is great gain. This is what he's, he's saying is true gain in comparison to the false teacher's false gain. Right? Great gain, he says, not in the sense of earthly riches, but of spiritual riches. Right? As the false teachers did all that they were doing for the love of money, they were revealing that their perspective, their outlook on the faith was for the accumulation of money. That this was the point of their existence. That this was their source of contentment and happiness and security and fulfillment. Their longing. Their, their longing, their contentment was coming not through God, but through money. And it seems here that as Paul addresses them, he's addressing the whole church. And in doing so, it's revealing that he's addressing a deeper problem and a temptation within the people of God. That contentment, by and large, was being associated with wealth. And I get it. I know that, I know that you get it as well. We all feel this. But what is contentment? What is true contentment? What is contentment to you and me where do you arrive in your life when you can truly say, I'm content, I'm satisfied? But even more than that, friends, what is contentment as defined by God? Well, the word contentment here in the Greek is the word autarchaeus. In the culture at that time, this word meant sufficiency. In fact, the Stoic philosophers at that time define contentment as self-sufficiency, self-competency. They would teach that man's ultimate happiness and satisfaction was not found in wealth or riches, and that sounds great. One's happiness is not found in one's circumstances, that sounds great as well. But where they went wrong is that they would teach that man could be content according to his own ability to rely on himself and nothing else. That what man could provide would be enough and that man should be content with nothing more than what he has. Now there's some good stuff in there, but the ultimate solution is misplaced. 
Now, that was the way that the culture was defining it, but, but Paul here, by the Holy Spirit, defines contentment differently, right? It's very different. What Paul agreed with was the fact that more stuff couldn't bring you happiness, true happiness. That's true. But the sufficiency part of it was not about sufficiency in self, but rather sufficiency in Christ, right? This is a pure, holy sufficiency. And he is arguing that that is where true gain is. That's where true contentment is. That regardless of life's circumstances, contentment is found not in stuff, nor in self, but in God. Right? Not in the temporary, but in the eternal. Not by what my hands can do, not by what I can provide, but in who God is. This is the same contentment Paul speaks about elsewhere. Philippians 4, 11 to 13, he says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Whatever circumstance, you can be content. He says, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in, ever, in any and every circumstance, right? Just go and study the persecutions of Paul, right? He says, I have learned the secret of placing uh, facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, right? Through all of these challenges that could have brought Paul so much discontentment, where he finds himself is that he is content not in himself, but content in Jesus Christ, right? Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Right? That's being content in, in Christ through anything. That's Christ contentment. It's a divine perspective of life. And friends, as much as you naturally think contentment, security, happiness is directly tied to what you have or what you don't have, the Christian understanding of true gain, true contentment, is found not in the fleeting temporary things of this world, but in the eternal reality of God himself. That's why Paul backs it up by saying in verse 7, For we brought nothing into this world, and we cannot take anything out of this world. We need to be thinking in light of the eternal, right? Not just the temporary. Paul says, you know, when it's coming to birth and death, we don't come in or go out with anything in our hands, right? Little Hannah Sophia that was born just a couple weeks ago, she didn't come into this world pulling a little travel bag with her, right? She came wearing nothing. And she'll go out with nothing. That's the same thing with how we all exit and enter this world. That's why you don't see trailer hitches on funeral hearses. You can't take anything with you. It's like the old proverbial saying, Shrouds have no pockets. As much as you can accumulate, as much as you can store up, it all stays behind where, moth, where, where rust and moth destroy. Somebody should have told the Egyptians that one. As the ancient Egyptian rulers would build themselves pyramids, basically as massive grave markers and mausoleums, they they built all kinds of secret rooms inside of those pyramids and they would fill them up with all kinds of stuff and their, their gold and their horses and their wives and everything. They wanted to take it all with them into the afterlife. You know, sometimes I think we're a lot more than the Egyptians than we want to think. Right? How we consume, how we hoard, how we buy and buy and accumulate how we fill our banks and how we plan our retirements, how we may even say, I trust in the Lord, but the moment that life threatens to take it all away, on comes the crippling worry, on comes the debilitating stress, on comes the sleepless nights, the anxiety-ridden days, all of the discontent. And so let me ask you, are you content right where God has you right now? Or are you discontent? Are you placing your sufficiency in Christ? Or like the Stoics, you place your, your sufficiency in yourself, what you can do. 
We've got to ask ourselves, to what point of the loss of property or stuff or money will we become discontent? How much do we love money for the security that it brings? Is your perspective polluted by the love of money? Friends, the love of money is a perspective polluter. It dials our focus in on the here and now. It dials the focus in on me and what I can provide. It dials the focus on what I can store up. And it clouds our perspective on the eternal, sufficient character and glory of God. We ask ourselves, despite where or what or when, is Christ Jesus enough? Is what I have right now enough? Is where God has me right now enough? Friends, above all, if you are his child, he will care for you. He will always care for you. And he is enough. Paul's saying that's what true gain is. That's what true contentment is. Friends, if you remember the story of Job, you'd remember that in the first chapter, he, he lost everything. Right? He lost his farm. He lost his riches. He even lost his children. His kingdom was completely devastated. But as he grieved for them, and as he assessed the situation, and then as he worshipped God, he cries out and he says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of God, name of the Lord. Friends, discontentment is ultimately believing that the Lord isn't good in his approach to me right now. Job was a rich man, a massively rich man. But in his perspective, his perspective was not polluted by his riches. Right? The text that we're looking at today doesn't say that money is evil. The text says the love of money is evil. Right? And so as we're thinking about this and trying to apply this, we have to think about our heart and our affections. What motivates my heart? Is money motivating? Is stuff motivating my heart? And is that polluting my perspective for the eternal? And is it in turn making me disconnect and questioning the goodness of God? Friends, we can't allow the temptation of riches to magnify the temporal and cloud the eternal. Second thing we see here, according to the Lord here, is that the love of money is also a satisfaction spoiler. The love of money is a satisfaction spoiler. It elevates the extras over the essentials. Paul says in verse 8, But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Friends, discontentment elevates our, our wants to the level of needs. The love of money elevates the extras over the essentials. You know, just a quick Google search about songs about money reveals that, that money is, is a huge issue when it comes to the human heart. Right, as the, as the Beatles sang, and I don't think they wrote this, but the Beatles sang, the best things in life are free. But you can keep them for the birds and the bees. Now give me money. That's what I want. Or if you were an ABBA fan in the 70s, any ABBA fans? The new ones don't really count, you know, with the musical and all that. But No, ABBA fans, money, 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 they sing. Must be funny in a rich man's world. Money, 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 always sunny in the rich man's world. All the things I can do if I had a little money. It's a rich man's world. Right, the common theme of, of many secular songs about money is that more money is the answer, right? More money is going to solve my problems. More money can bring me happiness, right? But, but are they right? Does it bring true happiness? And speaking of songs about money, 
Again, 90s child here. Uh, Notorious B.I.G. wrapped this. He said, more money, more problems. And he's so right. As the world believes money is the highway to contentment, the truth is that more is not better. J.D. Rockefeller, one of the richest men in the world in his day, said, I have made many millions, but they have brought me no happiness. He also said, the poorest man I know is the man who has nothing but money. Friends, the problem with with lusting for more and more and more here is that it always overpromises and underdelivers. Money will never satisfy. Ecclesiastes 5:10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. That's, that's, that's the insanity that goes on with these thoughts. Right? You love money. But the truth is, you'll never be satisfied with money. You're always going to want more. But even more than that, what we see Paul getting at here is is that when we want more and more and more, we're ultimately going to forget about the goodness and the blessings of the basics. And we end up becoming ungrateful to God. He says, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content." The terminology being used here for food and clothing also has the connotation of covering. If you have the New American Standard Bible, it says food and covering. So food for sustenance, clothing for covering, shelter to lay down your head. These are some of the very most simple basic necessities of life. That if we're not careful, as we want more and more and more, Our love of money can cause us to forget God's goodness, his goodness for the basics that we take for granted. When we elevate our wants to the same levels of our basic needs, we impose on God unmet needs that he is not obligated to fill. And we end up becoming ungrateful. For that kind, merciful, loving hand of God who constantly cares for us and nurtures us in the simplicity of the essentials. The more that we throw on the plate of, I won't be happy until this. Or, I'll never be truly satisfied until I gain this. The more we throw, or the more that we grow in ungratefulness, the more that we become discontent with the basis, basic goodness of our Heavenly Father who loves us. And so we ask ourselves, what are we discontent with right now? Where in your coveting and in your want are you elevating wants to the levels of needs? Elevating those things to a level that the Lord is not obligated to fulfill. James says in chapter 1, verse 17, that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the, Father's, from the Father of lights. Yes, the Lord is good to his children. Yes, everything comes from him. But friends, you're not promised everything that you want. And the problem is, is that when your unmet wants are not met, then we see ourselves squirming. We see ourselves churning in discontent and we end up forgetting, again, the good hand of God who is constantly always there to care for our real needs. Food, clothing, shelter. Paul says, in these things, we can be content. True contentment is is intrinsically connected, friends, to gratitude. Jerry Bridges says, Gratitude is a handmaiden of contentment. An ever-growing attitude of gratitude will certainly make us more content since we will be focusing more on what we do have, both spiritually and materially, than on what we do not have. But contentment is, is more than focusing on what we have. It's focusing on the fact that all that we do have, we have by the grace of God. We do not deserve anything we have materially or spiritually. It's all by his grace. 
Friends, the love of money is a satisfaction spoiler. As we can be biblically satisfied with the most basic of situations, this is, this is only going to happen when, when we focus less on the frills, less on the extras, less on the wants, and more on the grace of God. This loving Father who cares for us, who meets our needs. Now, I know if some of you are just really honest, when it comes to money, when you open up your banking app or your checkbook, your heart begins to palpitate. You're sweating out of fear about what you're going to see. And you have to talk yourself into it, right? right? As you punch in your password, you may, maybe you close your eyes and you wince at, at what your current situation is financially. And, and then as you open your eyes, you see that there's less in there than you thought. And it sends you on a tailspin. You stress out. You worry and, and you wonder, how are we ever going to get ahead? How are we ever going to buy that house? How will I afford to send Junior to college How am I ever going to retire properly? How will we ever get to that place of rest and contentment when it comes to finances? Friends, good stewardship is a good thing, right? Yes, we have to be wise. Yes, we have to be prudent. Yes, we have to be careful. That is all good. But also with all of that, we have to be careful that we don't make it out more than it needs to be. That we're not making financial contentment our God. Hoping for it to provide us that peace. Hoping for it to provide us that hope for our weary souls. Friends, to serve the love of money is to serve a God that will never satisfy. Jesus taught us this in Matthew 6. Verses 24 to 33, he says, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, he says. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven... Will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith. Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The Lord loves you and cares for you. We need not be anxious about his provision. Friends, the love of money is a God that can never be satisfied. But the love for for God above all things will ultimately satisfy. And God will always take care of the rest. And so don't elevate the extras over the essentials. Don't spoil your true satisfaction with the love of money, we have to be extremely careful. You know, even though the, the financial reports of debt load across our country are concerning, one of the positive outcomes over the past year during COVID-19 is that personal debt numbers have actually gone down. And charitable giving is actually up. Right, As people can't go out and spend so much on the extras, the trips, the restaurants, the entertainment, The frills, more of their money is going into their savings account. More of their money has been going towards paying off debt. And more of their money has been going to charity. And and in the church, more of the money was going to giving. That's probably why last year at this time, in the the height of the pandemic, 
our church seen its best giving ever. But then as the summer came, we got out there, giving took a dive. Friends, don't let the extras keep you from being fully satisfied and grateful to the Lord. Don't set expectations that the Lord is not obligated to meet. Don't set expectations that spoil your satisfaction from what you've been truly designed to be satisfied in, right? To be satisfied in God himself. Now, as the love of money pollutes our perspective and spoils our satisfaction, thirdly, we see here in verse 9 that the love of money deceives our desires. Verse 9, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge the people into ruin and destruction. Friends, the love of money is a desire deceiver. It pursues temptation over protection, over preservation. Friends, the love of money is a liar. It always overpromises and underdelivers. The love of money is a slippery slope into a sea of despair. The love of money is, is like that light that dangles on the forehead of an anglerfish, if you guys have seen those. This anglerfish with this light down in the dark depths of the sea, this light so enticing for, for little other animals to come and to try to be attracted to it. And what they end up finding on the other side of that light is a massive jaw of teeth ready to chomp and destroy. The closer you get to it, the more you love it. And all of a sudden, you find yourself in its snare, in its jaws, in ruin and destruction. Paul uses some pretty strong language here to, des to describe the devious descent that the love of money brings. He says, those who desire to be rich will fall will ultimately fall. You see this, this downward language going on here. They fall into temptation. right? Their hearts are, are so captivated and tempted that they begin to lose all rational thought and wisdom and they end up giving in to the schemer who was behind it all, the one who's dangling the light of the love of money. And they fall into a, a snare, he says. And the snare, of course... Is, is not set by yourself, but it's set by Satan. Right? The trap of desires may not even be your initial desire, but as sin goes, so does your palate grow for uh, more desirous flavors of sin that ultimately harm you. The love of money deceives our desires. It teaches us that instead of desiring God at all costs, I desire money at all costs. I desire riches. I desire stuff, self, sin at all costs. And it ends up that God ends up becoming dethroned from our hearts and his glory is stolen as we worship the God of money. For those Hobbit and Lord of the Rings fans out there, you'll remember that Thorn of Oakenshield in Tolkien's novel, The Hobbit. He experienced what was called dragon sickness. Right? He, he experienced the entrancing sickness of the love of gold. If you know the story, when the dwarves, when the dwarves returned to the lonely mountain and, and Smog the dragon was destroyed, Thorin became so entranced by his love for gold that he was willing to destroy his relationships just to protect his treasure. As one of the dwarves explained to Bilbo, he said, dragon sickness, I've seen it before, that look, that terrible need, it is a fierce and jealous love. Friends, when your desires are deceived by the love of money, you lose your ability to rationalize what's right and what's good, what's godly. And, and that fierce and jealous love for riches will walk you headlong into things that are going to harm other people and harm yourself. Paul says here, senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. 
Just think about what greed causes some people to do as they lie and steal and cheat and murder for the love of money. Maybe in your life, the desire for riches, the love of money and stuff shows itself in different ways. Maybe it's led you down a path of of senseless and harmful desires. When I was 12 years old, I remember sitting in a police station because I was caught stealing cassette tapes. I didn't have the money, and so my sinful, irrational love for stuff led me to break the law. Maybe for you, it's how you fill out your timesheet at work. Maybe it's how you fill out that bill that you charge. Maybe it's how you just filled out that tax return. Maybe it's the numbers that you adjust for your favor. Maybe it is true theft. Whatever the case, look at how your deceived desires lead to even more sin, right? That you will commit sin and risk your character and your job and your life just to try and satisfy that which can never be satisfied by riches. And if that's you today, the Lord calls you to repent. Repent of that desire. Repent of that sin. Repent of the fact that that you are risking all to try to satisfy devious desires. And that even more than that, in in your dragon fever, recognize and confess that, that you have placed the lust of gold over the love of God. The love of money, friends, destroys people. Again, as God has created you to worship him, friends, there's only one room. There's only room for one to worship. It says right back at Matthew 7, you can't serve two masters. As you remember Judas Iscariot, remember his betrayal of Christ for 30 pieces of silver. But more than that, friends, remember his ultimate end. Remember how his lust for money led him to his ruin and destruction as his his guts poured out as he hung himself in his fields. It destroyed him. Don't let your desires be deceived by the love of money. Money is a liar. And fourthly, we see ultimately, so closely tied with this last section, that the love of money is also a soul stealer. It ends in judgment and misery. The key verse, the hinge of this whole section is verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Again, not money itself, but the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Throughout history, mankind has proved that he will do anything and commit anything just to get his greedy little hands on more money. That money also drives him to do some of the most darkest, unethical atrocities history has ever known. And that although we may be tempted to think of this as just a worldly problem, we remember that Paul is writing this to the church. He's writing it to you and me. That it is through these cravings, these sinful desires, that some have wandered away from the faith and they have pierced themselves with many pains. This language here, to be pierced with many pains, has the the imagery of of a dead animal being put on a spit about to be roasted. Right? They're thrusted right through their body in death and pain and torment. He's painting the picture that some within the church who choose gold over God are ultimately going to reveal their true identity. That instead of being lovers of God, they're lovers of gold. Instead of being children of the Lord, instead of being true Christians, what's being revealed is in their lust and their love of money is that they're actually sons of disobedience, right? Sons of Satan. They're false converts. 
And their ultimate end in their lust after money is ruin. It is destruction. It is judgment. It is the pain of hell. As Jesus preached in Mark chapter 8, verse 36, he says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can man give in return for his soul? Friends, you can't give anything to get your soul back. There is no profit in gaining the whole world and and going to hell. Friends, hell is real. Hell is horrific. Hell is eternal. Don't let the love of money deceive you to the point of leading you to the lake of fire, to eternal torment, where the worm never dies and and the smoke goes up from her forever. The bad news, friends, is that the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter it are many. I would confidently say that many of the many who are, are going to hell are going there with dollar signs on their eyes. From the Pharisees to the scribes, to the Sadducees, to Judas, to the false teachers in Timothy's day, to false converts among the church. People who are pursuing godliness for a means of gain. To your neighbors, to your family members, to your friends, people loving gold rather than loving God. Are you loving gold over God? It's a good time to check our hearts. Maybe there are sneaky ways that this is happening in our life. Maybe right now the Lord is poking your heart and saying, this one, this is the one. As the Holy Spirit reveals that forgotten corner maybe in your heart or something that you've been trying to push back or hide, the Lord would call you to confess and repent of this. Maybe you need to start analyzing your fears a little bit, your anxieties when it comes to money. What is that truly revealing about your relationship with money and relationship with God? Friends, the good news in light of all of this, though, is that Jesus came to die for sinners like you and like me. Sinners who love money. Right? That while we were yet sinners, lovers of money, Christ died for us. And he gave himself as a ransom for us to free us from ourselves, to free us from our sin, to free us from our love of everything that we place above him. Unbelievers here this morning, repent and believe in this good news. Believers, if you're struggling with the love of money, confession and repentance still applies. His grace is sufficient for you. Turn away from that sin. Bring that sin to to the Lord. His grace is sufficient. And as you respond in faith, as the Holy Spirit does that work of sanctifying that and, and continuing to work on that in your heart, he will lead you by his word to walk in obedience, to walk in the strength that only he provides by keeping your perspective unpolluted, by keeping your satisfaction unspoiled, satisfied in him, keeping your desires undeceived, and captivating our souls by the only one who deserves all of our love, all of our worship, all of the glory. As Christ was upon that cross, as we're going to reflect on this Friday in our, in our Good Friday Service As you think about your life, think about the sins that have been forgiven by Jesus Christ upon that cross. Maybe the love of money is one of those big ones. And so as you walk through this week ahead, let's repent. Let's confess of this sin. Let's turn away from it. But let's also remember that this sin, if we are truly in Christ, has been absorbed by him upon that cross. 
that the wrath of God that you deserved upon yourself because of your love of money, if you're truly a believer, you repent and trust in Jesus Christ, that was all satisfied in Jesus Christ. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so as we anticipate Friday, it's a good week to be reflecting upon our sin and more than that, the grace of God who loves us despite our tendency to love money. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you, and I'm sure all of us at some level, just we, we know that, that temptation, that love of gold, that love of stuff, the love of money, this temptation to, to find our happiness in, in, in something other than you. And Lord, I speak for all of us, just for us to come before you and, and just to confess that. That we are sorry for worshiping the things made by hand. We are sorry for worshiping the things of this world, the things that always overpromise but underdeliver, knowing that money and gold and stuff will never satisfy. But you alone are our satisfaction. You alone are our joy. And you've created us to be fully satisfied in you alone. And so we come confessing, but we also come worshiping knowing that even though this is, may still be a temptation for those of us who are truly yours, that you can lead us by your spirit, by your word, to walk in this and to walk in continual repentance, to walk in the spirit, and that there would be less of us, less of the old man, and more of you, less of that temptation and that love of the things of this world, and more our eyes to be cast upon you and your glory and the joy and the satisfaction that is found in Christ alone. And we pray that in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Follow us on social media to stay up to date on current events and information from Redemption Church, Calgary South. And don't forget, you are loved.